We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as you know. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, this is what we are studying currently. And I want to remind you of how I see this. Deals with the issue of spirituality. Not only spiritual gifts. And uh, if you were here last week, uh, uh, let's see, yes, last week was when we were over at the Dodge building. So I drew some things on that board over there, and uh, I'm not going to do that again, but uh, how I see these chapters fitting together. So chapter 12 is dealing with the issue or the element or the part or the dimension of spirituality that is uh, spiritual gifts. Um, let, let me, this is an offensive, almost blasphemous thing to do, but let's pretend we're God, okay? Which again is a, one, an unimaginable thought, and two, it's probably a blasphemous thought, but hopefully three, it'll be a helpful thought. <laughs> but um, your program of redemption has been completed. The death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus has occurred. And now you want to change the world. You want to send the people who put their faith in your son out to proclaim the message. You want them to carry out your, um, uh, your again, I'm putting it the way we would maybe put it, your vision of what your disciples will do. How to change the world. How did Jesus answer that question? How is he going to change the world? Through people. people. What kind of people? Disciples. Disciples. And a disciple, Joel, is someone who... Learning follower of Christ. All right, a learner and follower of Christ. Uh, Did he send them out alone? No. He sent them out as a group. Uh, What institution did this group of disciples create? Actually, he created it, but what is that institution called? It's the church. It's the most important institution in this age. The two that go together and are just very symbiotic in what they do is the family and the church. Both are designed by God, instituted by God, clear roles, clear tasks, and our culture is totally confused on both of them. We, we don't have a clue what those two look like. And the further our culture gets from, from the, the, uh, the more dysfunctional we're going to see it become. We shouldn't be surprised. Don't be shocked by evil. Don't be shocked by what's happening in our culture because we are simply leaving the institutions that are the groundwork and bedrock of what the Lord wants to do in this world. And if we're not in his program, he just lets the natural consequences of choosing not to be in his program work themselves out. So if you're going to design the church that's going to change the world, what's the church going to look like? Everybody going to be the same? An automaton, a robot doing exactly the same thing? No. It's going to be a group of people that are incredibly diverse, in every, in every way, they're going to be diverse. 
and yet unified. They're going to be diverse in their gift, diverse in their task, diverse in what they look like, diverse in what they do vocationally, and yet unified. That's what Paul's trying to get across to these people in the first century, in A.D. 55, when he's writing to Corinth. You are a part of the most significant institution God has raised up to change the world. But you have to understand how he designed it. You have to understand why you look around each other on a Sunday morning in your little house churches and you say, what's he doing here? Why did God save him? Why did God rescue him? What, why is she? Now, come on, the guy who's leading the service is certainly far more important than the group of ladies that are caring for, caring for the young kids over in the next house. That's not how this chapter looks at it. Certainly we would say that those who have the more prominent and flashy gifts are, are, are really much more important than those who are doing the things that nobody notices, not according to this chapter. And Paul is, Paul is dealing with a, we, we're hard on the Corinthians because we can study them at a 2,000 year distance. But he's dealing with exactly the same things that are in our churches today. The local church is a messy thing. It really is. I mean, I'm now that I'm retired as president, I'm back in in, in staff of my part-time staff of my church, and it's messy. I mean, right now I'm helping these guys deal with a couple of things that you just oh come on. It's just this one. I just want to take him, shake him, smash him up against the wall, and said, <laughs> "Would you do what the Bible is telling you to do?" Because what you are experiencing is due to one thing. It's sin and it's rebellion. And until you change your ways, don't expect things to get better in your life. They're not going to. I mean, he's destroying his marriage. It's just one of the, it's just unbelievable. But that's the church. And it's just, and you have competition. You have interpersonal relationship issues. You have dysfunctional Because you've got a whole bunch of people who are just really bad people who come to faith in Christ. And he begins the process of transforming them. But they're still kind of messy, and they still have the jealousies and interpersonal issues. But they're a, they're a supernatural institution. And when you follow them over time, you see transformation, you see change, you see impact, you see phenomenal things happening. You can't look at them in just a second. If you, if you look at a, church, a local body in a five-minute window, you say, oh, my goodness, what do I want to be involved in this for? But you look out over a decade, you start to know the people, and you see what God's doing. You say, oh, my goodness. Because it's the most important thing God did. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Nothing's going to stop me. Even the gates of hell are not going to stop. The church is the winning institution in terms of God's program. So these three chapters are the key certainly in this book, but in, in many ways in terms of the whole Bible, certainly in Corinthians, but for, it really gives us an insight into how the Lord looks at the church. And so we're right in the middle of it. And actually, we're really on the front end of it <laughs> because we're, we're only in verse 10 of chapter 12. But a part of this mix called the local body is people are gifted by God's spirit to do things. People are gifted to make the entire body function the way the Lord wants it to function. 
And, you know, again, I draw your attention to this thing I gave out a couple weeks ago and referred to it last week. This is a cartoon, but it's a way of looking at giftedness. We have our own, and I'm kind of working from, does everybody have this, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody, or if you look, oh, okay. If you, if you look, here, here are your own talents, your own unique things that make up you and who you are. And God adds this supernatural enablement that we call a charismata or a gift that enables you then to serve in this local body in a way God expects you to serve, intends you to serve, wants you to serve, hopes you will serve. And so what he's doing, he, he Paul, what he's doing in this, this passage right at the beginning is, one, he helps us to understand, verse 7, gifts are given for the common good. We sometimes for translate that to edify, to build up. They are not given for you to have warm fuzzies about yourself, to you to feel good about yourself. And that, now you, I mean, to be affirmed and know you're doing what the Lord, that's important, but that's not the main purpose. You are to see what God has asked you to do as for the common good. And it's important, verse 8 through 11, that you understand, and these are suggestive, not comprehensive, listing of the gifts, that everybody has something different. And so he's just talking about them. And we, we make a lot of the, these lists, and we should. We should try to figure out what they mean. But these are suggestive lists. I don't believe it. I'm not the only one that says that. That we have in the New Testament a comprehensive, all-encompassing list of all the supernatural enablements God gives. I don't think we have that. We have important ones. We have significant ones. But what he's saying is everybody has something different that God's enabled them to do for the purpose of making the local body function the way God wants it to function. All right, now I'm kind of, I keep saying, I keep saying what I'm saying in different ways because I don't want you to lose the importance of what he is saying here. He is really helping us to understand how the church is supposed to function. And once we understand that, we, we come, and these are the two key words, we come to understand that the church is a unity, but in that unity is immense and complex diversity. Just like in the Godhead, which is what he tied it to in verses 4, 5, and 6. In the Godhead, there's unity. There's one God of three persons. And the, in, in effect, he seems to be saying, as, as the Trinitarian God, diversity in the unity of one essence God, that's the model for how he set up the church. Which is, is this is kind of an amazing analogy. That the local church, or indeed the universal church, but the church is analogous to the relationship of the members of the Trinity within the Godhead. And then you kind of, you kind of go, Wow. There's something supernatural about the body. Uh, Jimmy said that the church is going to fulfill the purposes that God has, has given to it, and it will succeed. And our standard of success sometimes is measured by uh, the majority of people. And if you look at the total world, the success would be measured in our 
fleshly standards by the majority of people coming to Christ and, and the church is really flourishing and succeeding uh, for God's purposes. And yet, you, you counterbalance that by saying things are going to get worse. So, what's our measuring tool in, in light of that today so that we don't become discouraged by looking on the world from the church perspective. Well, there are about five questions there, Fred. <laughs> but your main one, I, I think, is uh, is extremely uh, relevant and a very wise uh, question. It, I think it's important in the local body of believers, the local church, to be very careful that we don't... Um, We don't define success solely in terms of the standards that are often used in the culture for what success is. Numbers, large numbers, uh, um, rapid, quick attainment of clearly laid out goals. I'm not saying church, our church, since I've been on staff, we have a strategic plan now, we have metrics set up and all of that. But those those kinds of things one has to be very, very careful because Often, the way God measures success is not necessarily the way we measure success. Let me put it another way. Um, <clears throat> success from God's perspective is always from the vantage point of eternity. You and I don't have that perspective. You know what I mean? He, he looks at Jim Ekman from the moment I was conceived on to into eternity, and he sees how everything that's the guy owns. When I'm just right here, I'm thinking, like, nothing seems to be really going right here. But God is saying, in effect, trust me, things are being accomplished in and through you that are eternally relevant, and just trust me. But I think for the local body particularly, that is sometimes really hard. Particularly, I mean, I've, I've known a lot of guys over the years of my ministry, young guys who are out in a rural area of Nebraska, like the Sand Hills, don't tell them to measure the success of their ministry by numbers. That's never going to happen. Don't tell them to measure their success by the number of converts. That's probably not going to happen. So it's, it's looking, at, looking at, and here's where I'm finally getting to the answer to your question. What God is calling us to do, Fred, is be faithful. He will take care of the results. In some cases, it might be extraordinary. You know, I tell the guys that sometimes you're going to get to lead or be involved in a mega church where you will measure success in large numbers, big budgets, and multiple staff. But some of you will be involved in a church where you're the only person and you may be part-time because the church can't afford to pay you a living salary. So you, you cannot do, that's an apples and oranges situation. God is calling us to be faithful to what he has entrusted us to do. And in each one of these specific gifts, be faithful in what God has gifted you and in using it in his, in his work. Um, so that's a long answer to your question. Let's look and finish the gifts, okay? Last week we spent a lot of time in verses 8, 9, and 10. We were in 10 to another prophecy. 
Now, we, we have to be, honestly, we have to be very careful how we think of that. Because often, when we see the word prophet, to another prophecy, it's a noun, to prophesy is the verb. But a gift of prophecy is not only to tell the future, and in some cases, that may be the intent of it, but it is primarily used in the New Testament of the ability to present truth already revealed. The gift of prophecy is declaring something. It's a declaration. And in most cases in the New Testament, it's a declaration of truth already revealed. And that seems to be an important distinction because there aren't many Jeremiah's walking around in 2014. There aren't many Isaiah's walking. You know what I mean? Where God's giving them direct revelation and they're communicating it. I'm not saying that the Lord maybe doesn't do that, but typically I don't think that's how we should think about that gift. So, The last uh, three, distinguishing of spirits. Um, again, that, that's, it sounds so mysterious, but it's really, it's, it's a discernment. It's a gift of discernment to test what someone is saying. Is it true? Or is it false? And the discernment, that, that distinguishing, that testing of the Spirit is a discernment where you evaluate through the grid of what you know in Scripture. It's, it's that supernatural enablement to discern when you hear something, when you see something. Is that of God? Or is it not? And then the last two, especially the second last one, is still terribly controversial in, in, the, in the Christian church, especially uh, in North America and to some extent in South America. But tongues, the text actually says, to another, literally kinds of tongues. And then the, the last one is the interpretation of the tongue. <clears throat> now the word tongues is glossa, it just it can mean this thing that's in our mouth <laughs> but normally it's used figuratively of that um, uh, using Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost uh, I, I, I prefer not to get into the debate or the discussion unless you really 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 press me whether this is a major gift today that we should seek and, and uh, practice and so on but it, it is used in the New Testament of a language that you did not learn. When you look in Acts 2, the gift of tongues is that is these people were not hearing undistinguishable utterances. They were hearing the gospel in their own language. You following? I mean, it was language that they could hear and understand. Now, there is a case can be made that there is such a thing as a um, non language or non-dialectic speech that is uh, uh, some form of worship, uh, and that we will leave for perhaps another time. But primarily in the New Testament, it is used of a language that you did not learn. 
in the interpretation of tongues is that again that it can be it can be uh, interpreted it can be made clear because as we learned in verse 7 a gift is given for the common good and if nobody can understand what you're saying nobody's benefiting from it so there has to be some way to make it beneficial to the whole so that's all I have to say about that to quote a major theologian named Forrest Gump but if you have any questions about that let's get it out now otherwise I'm going to leave this for now because one thing we learn in chapter 14 as I when we talked last week one of the marks of spirituality is there's order that's what chapter 14 is about there's order God it will tell us in that chapter God is never the author of confusion God is always the author of order so if there is going to be a gift of tongues however you understand that gift it must be interpreted or nobody is benefiting from it. So however you're going to understand that gift, and there are a couple of different ways people process this, there, there, there must be order and people must benefit from it. It seems from what Paul will say in 14, if you speak in tongues and no one understands what you're saying, that's an abuse of that gift. It is not accomplishing the purpose for which God gave it. So however you understand it, uh, that's it. Okay? Any questions? I would really like to get through this, but I don't want to press any or set aside any important questions. So a summary statement is verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And the he is capitalized. So this, this seems to me to be important based on verse 11 should we seek to acquire a gift it doesn't that doesn't seem logical you order somebody you must speak in tongues or you're not spiritual you must have the gift of healing or you're not spiritual that, that verse 11 doesn't allow for that the spirit sovereignly gives gifts you need to understand what that is. And it seems to me to be an important verse for that. Okay? What I would like to do in verse 12 through really the end of the chapter is just see this unity theme and diversity theme together. So what is the church? The church is a unity of disciples <coughs> of Jesus The church is a unity 
of disciples of Jesus, each with a supernatural enablement for the common good. Diversity. There is diversity in unity. If you can think of those two words, you've got the local church nailed. At least in terms of biblical theology is concerned. To make it work is another, another thing. But this, to me, this chapter, chapter 12, is such a refreshing window that the Lord is opening for us through Paul to really understand what the local body is. And it's, and if you've ever, and I'm pretty sure, unless your church is one of the very few exceptions on planet Earth in the last 2,000 years, you can observe this in your church, and you can observe this in your church. But usually, this is always tested because this isn't understood very well. This is constantly being tested because the diversity isn't clear, there's jealousy, there's interpersonal issues. And so this is what it's supposed to be, but this usually is what's breaking down because this isn't being understood or applied very well. Does that make sense? Or is that so theoretically I'm on Pluto and you're down on planet Earth? Good. Dave, I'm always glad when you say it makes sense. Because <laughs> you often have questions. Good. Let's just look at, and again, unless you really want me to, I'm going to go through this really quickly because I, the point is so easy to understand. Verse 12 and 13 is unity. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all are members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now don't, don't let that last phrase, drink of one spirit, that's, that's an idiom, and it isn't that complex. It's just mean to receive. Another way of saying verse 13 is the unifying element of the church is the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying it, everyone gets the Spirit. I don't have more of the Holy Spirit than Jim does. Neither does he have more than I do or Andrew. We all have the Holy Spirit. I told you this before, and honestly, verse 13 is, is it's like Galatians 3.28. It's really an astonishing claim. But I said this to you before, the church in the first century was the most socially leveling institution in the ancient world. I mean, it, it was an astonishing, it must have been an astonishing thing to see in the Greco-Roman world. There was nothing like it. But in a local church, when they met, and you know, we talked about this, they met typically in houses, and you would see Greco-Roman people and Jews going into that same house. You'd see a master and his three slaves and family going into the house for church. You'd, you'd see men and women sitting together. I mean, said, oh my God, no, there's nothing else like this. That's true. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 13 again, the unifying factor is everybody gets the Spirit. And by the way, the word baptized in, in verse 13 
It can mean the ordinance of baptism. I mean, it, maybe it does, but don't forget baptism or the verb baptize means to be identified with. That's what that means. When you are, were baptized, I don't know if you all were or not, but when you went through baptism and you experienced baptism, you are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. That's what, that, that's what it is. And so what he's saying to us here is the unifying element is the spirit. Everybody gets the spirit. You don't get more of him than somebody else or less of him. Everybody, that's the unifying factor. It's, it's, it's really a wonderful thing. And then verse 14 through 20 is the diversity. And again, he's using the analogy of the human body, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, is not for this reason any the less part of a body, and the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one, but uh, were one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And that's, it's kind of convoluted, but you get the point. It's like a human body, can you imagine a human body is just an ear? That's kind of a repulsive thing to even conceive. And he's just making these absurd statements to drive home the point. <laughs> As in the human body, there's great diversity, so it's in the body of Christ. What's the unifying factor? The spirit. What's the evidence of diversity? All of our unique idiosyncrasies, plus we each have a different gift. Not very, very difficult to understand. All right, we got that? I mean, it's, this, isn't, this isn't rocket science now, once we get the principle. We, I don't think it is. But verse 21 and following. There is a mutual dependence in the human body and in the body of Christ. There is a mutual dependence. What does that mean? Okay, obviously, you didn't hear that question. I've been talking too much today, so that's the problem. What does that mean? That's my phrase. That isn't a biblical phrase. But what does that mean, mutual dependence? all depend on each other. <coughs> Joel, in your experience, you're, you're a mature, older gentleman who's been involved in the church for a long time. Do you see a lot of that mutual dependence? Uh, at times, but not, not wrong. Talk to me a little more. What, what, what is that... Um, what does that look like? You mean by in the body of Christ, like yeah. within the church? Yeah. You know, think about it within our church. And yeah, church, absolutely. Mutual dependence. Mutual dependence, not independence. Dependent. Right. Independent, right? Well, I think it's just like a lot of other areas why people want to kind of control their own um, their own domain, so to speak. Mm. Mm, yeah. Divisions in, in different yeah. areas or different ministries as opposed to 
Is it natural sometimes to see turf wars in the church? Sure. Yeah. I didn't say, is it good? I said, is it natural? Yeah, you do see turf wars. You see uh, protecting your own area of ministry or guarding your own so that it's yours and nobody else's or it's just my little domain that I rule over and I don't particularly care what your domain is. I'm going to argue that there's more mutual dependence than there maybe are problems. The problems are sort of anecdotal and symptomatic, but when I got to church in the morning, somebody already cleaned the parking lot. Good. Somebody's opened the doors. Somebody's already greeting. Uh, the music team is up front and they're ready to leave worship. Uh, pastor gets up to speak, and by the way, somebody trained him in a seminary or a theological school somewhere. You know, I mean, and you can go on and on and on about all of these different giftednesses. That's not a right word, is it? All it's the a great word. It's a great word. That are that somehow come together to make a the local church effective and make the you know the capital C the bigger church mm. effective as well. And mm. you know, while there are these little things that go on that are maybe personality driven, you know, by and large, God's created an amazing thing that works together. I'm really glad you said that because what we camp on, and that's what I'm trying to get out in my conversation with Joel there, what we camp on are are the things that naturally are going to creep into any organization, and the local church will be no exception. But sometimes we do is what you just did. We have to stand back and see this is an amazing organism at work. I mean, it really is. It's an amazing thing to watch on a Sunday morning or you know, there are often a lot of things going on during the week, too. And you see, it is amazing that it works well. I mean, our church is, uh, we, we don't have our own building. We we, uh, we run a school, and because it's a church plant, and it's still pretty young. But, you know, there are there are so many things going on beyond the scene nobody knows about. There's a setup crew. Get there about 45 minutes before anybody else did. They have to set everything up. And they have this enormous not a van. What do you call the things that you pull along? I guess it's like a van. Like a trailer. It's a large trailer. That's where they store all the stuff and it sits on somebody's lot during the week. And then we have everything really well organized in crates and everything's marked. And then we got it down to science. It's it's amazing. But that's the mutual dependence at work. Nobody sees these people. But you walk into the school and everything's set up. And it's just... It is, it is something to see the body of Christ at work. That's what he's trying to get at. It's unity in diversity. The diversity is what produces the unity because it's sourced in the Spirit. And the unity is what continues to foster the beauty, beauty of the diversity. They just work together. And things, I tell the guys, we should not be surprised when these challenges keep raising up, raising their ugly heads. But that's the reality. Keep focusing on the things that really are working right. Can, can Absolutely, please. I mean, I've had the opportunity to serve on several church boards and work in other organizations where that are spiritually based. And, you know, you, you go into those and you think, I mean, when, you're, when you're just sitting in the congregation, for example, everything looks great. You don't see the some of the messiness, but when you get into the church border, you see some of that. <laughs> and so, I mean, I always had to kind of prepare myself by saying, you know, you know, around the table at the church board, these are just people. 
you know, that people have all the foibles that people have. And so, it, I mean, you just, you can't expect, I mean, if you expect perfection, you're likely to be disappointed. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you realize that, you know, people have all the selfishness and, uh, you know, all of the pride and, you know, all of the other things that, that all of us have, it's no wonder that there are some kinds of, sometimes, things that go on. So, I think part of it is, is managing expectations when you're dealing with the church. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you nailed it. That's exactly right. Managing expectations. That's a good... And it's being... It's, it's keeping the balance between, like I said shortly uh, after we began, it's keeping the balance of seeing big picture things over time. But if you look at it, just a snapshot of a five-minute block, that can be very disconcerting. I mean, it really can, you know. <laughs> but you look at it over time. I mean, that's, that's the way, that, I mean, I've been in higher ed most of my life. If you, if you just look at a student in a snapshot of five minutes, you'd quit. That's it. I'm, there's no way I'm going to. But you look at some, I mean, I know sometimes when I was in leadership, I'd look at a freshman the first week and say, why did we let you in here? What are you doing here? <laughs> this, this guy shouldn't be here. What was what was your what did you do on the entering all? You know, you're not sure. Maybe a 13, ACT. And that's 13 is really really low on an ACT score. I'm making that up. But then you see them after their junior, their sophomore year entering, and you say, Oh my goodness, this guy's really changing. This. And by the time they graduate, you think, because I, when I was president, I had the privilege of always presenting the diploma. It's just amazing to see some of those kids. I remember what you were like four years ago, in some cases five years ago. That's, that's the perspective our Lord has. He, see, he sees us from the moment we're conceived on into it. He sees how everything fits together. That's why he never gives up on us. He, he never throws in the towel. And so Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to put all these things together into a holistic, biblically understanding perspective about the local body of believers. And this dependence, this mutual dependence, is where he wants to end up. You are mutually dependent. Now, I'd like to conclude this morning. I'd really like to get through chapter 12. Really would. And since I'm the teacher, we're going to get through chapter 12 today. But I know it's just, this isn't hard stuff. It's, it's applying it, it's remembering it. But I want to close with verses 27 through 31 so that next week we can start the magnificent chapter 3, uh, chapter 13, which I want to spend a couple of weeks in. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. There's the unity and the diversity in one statement. But remember, verse 28, not everybody has the same gift. God is appointed in the church. and There's an ordinal listing here, first, second, so it seems to be in importance. He's doing something a little different than he did back in verses 8 and following. There's an ordinal list here that seems to be important in terms of the chronology of the church. And God has appointed in the church first apostles. Who were the first leaders? The apostles. Then prophets, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing. Again, note gifts is plural. 
helps administrations. By the way, that term we translate administrations was used of guiding and directing a ship on the open sea. So someone's got a lead. That's what the administrator in various kinds of tongues. Verse 29 and verse 30, but yet not everybody has the same gift. Or not apostles are they, or not prophets are they, or not teachers are they, or not workers of miracles are they. Do not have gifts of healing, do they? Do not speak in tongues, do they? No to interpret, do they? So he's saying two things in summary that he's been saying to us throughout the chapter. There is an interdependence in the body, a diversity within the unity of the body. Not everybody has a, uh, everybody has a gift, but secondly, not everybody has the same gift. Now, the punchline, the transition to chapter 13. Now, around the table this size, we probably have a number of translations. I believe the proper way to translate verse 31, and it is, it's difficult, and unless you really want me to, I'm not going to explain the grammar why it's difficult. But I think the best way to understand verse 31a is, but, notice a contrast word. So what he has been saying, he now contrasts with the word but. But, you earnestly desire the prominent gifts, the greater gifts. Is that a compliment? Or is that an evaluative statement about the current prominent gifts? Prominent gifts or greater gifts. Depends on your translation, which one you'll have. This is 31A, the first part. But you earnestly desire the greater, or you could translate that prominent gifts. Is he paying them a compliment? Or is he saying to them something that's evaluative? I was a compliment. It's a compliment? Okay. So it's not necessarily a compliment, is it? Or is it? You should desire the more prominent gifts? I mean, Okay, see, that's, that's, that's the tension. And in grammar, is this, a, in, you can't tell, in, in Greek, it, it's indistinguishable. Is this an imperative or is this indicative? Is this making a statement of fact or is it giving a, is it giving a command? I, do you understand what I'm doing in grammar? So, so the New American Standard leaves the word you out. It does leave the word out, you out. Mm-hmm. Which makes a huge difference. It makes an enormous difference. It's the difference between a command and a statement of fact. The difference between imperative and, and indicative. <clears throat> It seems to me that he's kind of passing judgment on the Corinthians that they're incorrectly desiring the greatest of the mm. gifts. Okay. But there isn't. But it almost implies that. What helps us? Okay, Dave, that's good. What helps us? What helps us to see in verse thirty-one that that may be his point. That they have got their priorities wrong. The eagerly part and the desire part. 
Uh, what do you mean, Joe? When he says, I will show you a still more excellent. Okay. All right. He seems to be saying to them, okay, I've explained to you how the body's to function. I've explained to you every aspect of the unity and diversity, and diversity fosters unity, all that that he's been developing. Seems to be an evaluative statement, but some of you are seeking or desiring a more prominent or a greater gift. But I want to show you a more excellent way. In other words, the second half of verse 31 helps us to understand what he's saying in the first half of verse 31. And I want you to think about one other aspect of this with me. Remember back in verse 11, the gifts are sovereignly given by the Spirit. So to seek, to desire, to strive after something that's supernaturally given, it depends on how he's, again, it depends on the spirit in which he's saying this, whether it's an observation or whether it's a critical evaluative statement. But it seems to me the second half of verse 31 helps us to understand he wants them to put this in perspective. All right, now, I don't, I, I'm sorry, I don't usually get this technical, but there, sometimes you have to bring some of this up to really get the intent of a verse and make it clear. At least we can say this. If, and I, I believe it, it is the right way to look at this, if the major theme of verse 12, 13, and 14 is spirituality, And verse 12, chapter 12, excuse me, is on spiritual gifts as a dimension of spirituality. Then how does chapter 13 fit? Do you understand my question? If the theme, the main point, the main, the main focus of these three chapters is what does it mean to be spiritual? What does spirituality look like? And a dimension of spirituality are the gifts. And how does chapter 13 fit? Well, it establishes a, a, higher, a higher standard, higher measure of what how spirituality is really expressed. All right. And it's not in the gift. It's in love. This had been really foreign. They had lived, they were, most of them had lived Old Testament law. This priority thing was... Some would have those who were Jewish, the Greco-Roman convert. Absolutely, for for the Jewish convert, this was absolutely radical. Am I losing you? Because some of you have that deer in the headlight look, and I, I want to make sure I haven't lost you. This it is really, really important to me, and I think it's really, really important to understanding First Corinthians. It's really un- important to understand why chapter 13 is here. So, I mean, when he gets to verse 31, then he, he is not necessarily disparaging the, the gifts because no, they not at all. Essential. No, absolutely, not at all. It's not disparaging at all, right? But he wants him. He wants. I think he wants to do two things here. One is the exercise of the gifts 
must be through the grid of love. Mm -hmm. And suggesting, secondly, that love, and the word, I'm going to teach you this if you don't already know it, the word love here is agape. It's the most profound Greek word for love. It's almost impossible to translate it with just one word, but love is the right way to translate We have to talk about what that means, and we'll do that next week. But I want you to think of it at even a different level. If you go back and look at the various gifts he mentioned in chapter 12, some of those you can fake. Some of those you can carry out on your own strength. Some of those are just part of who you are. But as we get into verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 13, you can't fake this. This this is impossible for you to consistently put on a facade and say, I love like this. Paul is trying to get across to us. And that's why I think chapter 13 is right in the middle between 12 and 14. That bookend love. Love is the vital center of this. Love is what makes this work. Because without this, without love, this isn't going to work. The body isn't going to work. And so he's, he's I, this is why I, I believe the, the word there in verse 1 of chapter 12 is not spiritual gift, it's spirituality. The key to the spiritual life is love. It's that one dimension of life, men, that consistently, day after day after day, you cannot fake that. You can't imitate it. You can't pretend it. You follow me? It's it's a supernatural way. Right now in our church, there's a guy who is, it's, it's a marriage, it's a difficult situation. But he is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. He's setting conditions on his love. In effect, he's saying, I will love you if you do this, this, and this. Is that biblical? No. It's thoroughly unbiblical. Contrary to everything in Ephesians 5, 22 and following in Colossians 1, uh, 3, 19, let alone 1 Peter 3. Performance-based, just like you can't performance-based. Yeah, it's, it was, it's just it's, it's absolutely horrible. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. A man is to, and that's what agape means, is to unconditionally love his wife. Just like a father is to unconditionally love his children. And that's what verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 describe. An unconditional love for people. Now, as you know, that doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable, your children and so on, but that's, that's not the point of this. And this, is, this chapter is, you know, I've done hosts of weddings in my life, and almost every wedding they want to have First Corinthians 13 read. Somewhere it's got to fit into the ceremony. It's great. It should. It's, it's a fabulous passage. But to live it. Men, I, I don't, I'm hoping you would agree. When I read 4 through 7, I'm going to give you a sheet which interprets everything. It's going to be two sheets front and back next week. That interprets all of these words and fleshes them out. You can, I can't live verses 4 through 7 on my own. I can't live that. Paul is saying... 
key to spirituality is the love that he's about to describe. That's what he means by the end of verse 31. I want to show you a more excellent way. And the word there is arete. It was the most important word in the Greek language. It was the height. Plato and Aristotle, that's the heights of our philosophy. That's what we want to achieve. It's not through some philosophical system. It's not through logic. It's through love. The love that Jesus Christ showed to us is the, the word for love here. So that's, that's what we're going to do next week. We are going to take chapter 13 apart in all of its segments, and then we're going to put it together again. I'm going to give you a handout on that. I really I wanted I wanted to try to get through twelve simply because it isn't hard once you understand what he's doing. I hope I didn't go too fast, so that we can spend a lot of time the next couple of weeks in chapter thirteen. Make sense? Uh-huh. Excellent. Excellent. Anyway, we can we can pray for Woody. He's not here today, but doing fairly good, fairly well, I should say. So it was so good to see him last week. All right, I'm going to pray, and we'll get going. Father, it's been a good uh, good refresher for me to just remember from this chapter 12 how you view your church. It's a messy thing. It bring, we bring all the baggage and stuff into the local body of believers, but it is an amazing thing to see. The unity of the body with all of its diversity and how well everything does work, that mutual dependence, that interconnectedness, that um, just amazingly Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, as well as during the week and all the different people that are involved, teaching young children, the Iwana programs, all the different things that can go on. Uh, That is really something to see that week after week functioning. Uh, There is a mutual interconnectedness, all done by your Spirit, with your enabling power to the glory of the Father. It is truly a a, a supernatural thing to observe. I believe, uh, and I think that's true, every guy around this table is involved to one degree or another in the local body, involved in, in a church. And sometimes we focus so much on those negative issues, those things that can disunite and create the kind of tension and division We also forget sometimes how beautiful this thing really is. Help us to keep that focus, because that's certainly your focus. You are doing something supernatural. And we, as members of the church, we are the agents of this transforming grace that you're asking us to represent to a desperately needy world. Help us to keep that perspective as well. Thank you for each man man here. Ask your watch care over them through this day. Help them in their many, many responsibilities. Many are fathers, some grandfathers. Uh, All have respective responsibilities in their vocations or jobs. Help them with those. If they are uh, married, help them in their relationship with their wives. Help them to love their wives unconditionally. There are no conditions to the kind of love that the scriptures are calling us to as husbands. And therefore, help us to be that beacon of light in our homes, in our communities, as well as in our churches. And as we often pray when we gather on Wednesdays like this, God, help us to indeed represent you well. We ask this all in the name of your dear Son. Amen.